0: Hello, and welcome to the Shepherd of the Hills Sermons Podcast. Every week we share our Sunday morning sermons with you to keep these important conversations going. We hope you not only enjoy hearing our words of God's love for you, but will also feel compelled to share these words with everyone who needs to hear this message. As always, we encourage you to keep the conversation going at home, at work, and everywhere you go. Take a few moments to ask the questions that need to be asked, and share the gospel with all. This week, Pastor Scott talks about the Ten Commandments and the Hebrew prayer known as the Shema, as words which are the foundation to community for the Israelites and for us. So sit back, relax, and let us dive into this week's story and sermon.
1: Our first lesson today comes from the book of Deuteronomy, chapters 5 and 6. Moses convened all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and ordinances that I am addressing to you today. You shall learn them and observe them diligently. The Lord our God made a covenant with us at Horeb. Not with our ancestors did the Lord make this covenant, but with us, who are all of us here alive today. The Lord spoke with you face to face at the mountain, out of the fire. At that time, I was standing between the Lord and you to declare to you the words of the Lord, for you were afraid because of the fire and did not go up the mountain. He said, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol, for in the form of anything that is in heaven above, or that is on the earth beneath, or that is in the water underneath the earth, you shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I was the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing children for the inquiry of parents to the third and fourth generation of those who reject me, but showing steadfast love to the thousandth generation for those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not make wrongful use of the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not acquit anyone who misuses his name. Observe the Sabbath day and keep it holy, as the Lord your God commanded you. For six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. You shall not do any work, you, nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female slave, nor your ox or donkey, or any of your livestock, or the resident alien in your towns, so that your male and female slaves may rest as well as you. Remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Honor your father and your mother, as the Lord your God commanded you, so that your days may be long and that it may go well with you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, neither shall you commit adultery, neither shall you steal, neither shall you bear false witness against your neighbor, neither shall you covet your neighbor's wife. "'Neither shall you desire your neighbor's house or field "'or male or female slave or ox or donkey "'or anything that belongs to your neighbor. "'Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord alone. "'You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart "'and with all your soul and with all your might. "'Keep these words that I am commanding to you in your heart. "'Recite them to your children and talk about them "'when you are at home and when you are away. "'When you lie down and when you rise, Bind them as a sign of your hand, fix them as an emblem on your forehead, and write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. The word of our Lord.
2: I love it when the kids' choir outnumbers the adult choir. That's a nice deal. They're louder, too. Uh, Thanks. This is a combined group, if you didn't notice. This is a little bit of shepherd song and a little bit of our traditional choir. Can you just give them a round of applause and thanks for all singing together today? Uh, I also just want to note a couple of um, gratitudes. You'll know if you're a regular around here, we often start most of our meetings with gratitudes and laments. I just want to share a couple of quick gratitudes before we get started. Um, I I hope that you've been uh, sort of keeping up a little bit that I'm back in school and um, I've been writing a little bit about that in some blog posts and some things uh, on our newsletter. I just want to again say how grateful I am to be able to have the opportunity. Um, It's just a remarkable thing to go back to school sort of what I hope is Um, mid-career, and I am so grateful from the professors to the readings uh, to my classmates. It's just an amazing group of people, so I'm grateful to be able to do that, so let me say thank you. Um, I also need to say thank you to our staff. Uh, Many of you know that we are one pastor short, um, and so we've headed into the fall, sort of one pastor down. I'm just grateful for all their work in getting so many of the things that we're doing ready, and then I also need to just say a special thanks to our church council and all of the teams who have also stepped up. Uh, I am super grateful. There are lots of things that are happening that are being led by our council, and I am super grateful. Uh, If you weren't here Wednesday night, we had over 100 people or so that were here to uh, Todd Buin and talk about climate change, Uh, and I'm grateful to Todd and also to Joan Dillon and all of our kids uh, who were part of that discussion. So thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Make sure that when you see our council and those folks, you say thank you to them. Uh, Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Wow, you are with me this morning. I love it. Let us pray. I pledge allegiance to Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection, and to the kingdom for which he died, Josue and Maria on the run, the poor, outcast, and marginalized. My life is God's. In her I find my hope and my salvation. I pledge to God, above all else, money, power, state, or party, I give to God all that I am, so that all may live in love. God, break our hearts for those who weep, that we may see in one another the face of God in all we meet, father, sister, mother, brother. I pledge allegiance to Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection, for there is no triumph but your love, forgiveness and confession. Amen. You probably didn't notice, but the entire book of Deuteronomy is actually in the form of a very political and religious document. In 1954, there was a group of archaeologists who found a vassal treaty that was an Assyrian treaty uh, that was talking about being a vassal state to Assyria in about the 7th century. And what is interesting to scholars is that the book of Deuteronomy actually almost perfectly matches and mirrors this vassal treaty. There are a whole bunch of scholars who believe that what Israel actually did in the book of Deuteronomy was to take this vassal treaty and turn it into their religious and national declaration and pledge. What's interesting is that the book of Deuteronomy does two things all at the same time historically. If you know anything about what's happening, the, the setting of the story historically is Moses leaving the wilderness and entering into the promised land. And the historical place that we find ourselves is probably in the 1200 to 1250 BCE. But the composition of the book of Deuteronomy doesn't take place until the 7th or 6th century BCE. And what's so interesting is that the book of Deuteronomy is a very political and religious statement. In fact, I might say that the book of Deuteronomy is an anti-political statement of faith. What a guy named Everett Fox, who's a translator of the Hebrew scripture in the Old Testament, says is this. What's fascinating about the parallels to the book of Deuteronomy and the Vassal Treaty is not that they exist, But that here, apparently, a political model from a hated enemy has been assimilated and transformed into a positive religious one. If you pay any attention to reading the Old Testament, you'll notice that God is not always a huge fan of people who are in power, who are privileged, and who have a lot of money, and who think that they have a lot of control. And the people of Israel and the scriptures are often highly critical, even of themselves. When David becomes king, God is not excited about that possibility. One of the things that a scholar named Evan, uh, Ellen Davis says is this. The end of what we heard today is called the Shema, or Hear, O Israel. Uh, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your substance, and write these statues and ordinances on your hearts. Ellen Davis says of this, that the Jewish devotional manuals throughout the centuries and the earliest ones advised those who prayed the Shema to be mindful of the possibility of martyrdom. The Hebrew people are a little crazy. They pledge their allegiance not to any political ruler, but to God. They have pledged their allegiance not to governments or kings, but of God. Patrick Miller... Uh, A theologian says this actually about the Old Testament theology and about Deuteronomy in particular. One scholar has properly said the claim found in this prologue and repeated in various ways throughout the Bible comes very close to a theology of revolution. I don't know if you've noticed lately, uh, but we're in a political mess. (laughs) Have you noticed? I make the claim that I think what's happened to our politics is that we have substituted our politics for our religion. And that what we have done on both sides of the equation is that we have claimed that uh, in order to be part of one or the other party, you have to pledge complete devotion to that, depart- that party no matter what. Uh, our Hebrews brothers and sisters would be ashamed. And I think, in fact, we should be too. And we should be highly critical of ourselves. One of the things that we do when we gather is that we make a promise that we are first and foremost followers of God, and not first and foremost Americans. We are first and foremost followers of God. And so I wonder, to whom have we pledged allegiance and why? And when you watch and listen to the news, to whom have we pledged allegiance and why? One of the very things that I noticed as I was getting ready for this week that caught my attention, unlike any other, is that the beginning of the Ten Commandments actually is not our promise to God, but it's actually God's promise to us. I don't know why I've never noticed this before. Did any of you notice this when you heard the story for the Red again this morning? I heard this, I am Yahweh, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of a house of slavery. And maybe you didn't notice, but I forced you to reenact the story of Deuteronomy this morning as you were unaware as coming into the sanctuary. I gathered us all together like Moses gathered the people of God and they turned and faced Moses, sort of like facing the baptismal font, and Moses preaches to them and claims that God has claimed all of God's people and then recites the 10 commandments. I actually made you do this this morning. Did you notice? Are you awake? The voices in the book of Deuteronomy are worth paying attention to because it vacillates back and forth between Moses and God. And in this case, it's God that speaks. I am Yahweh, your God, who brought you out of the house of Israel. God chooses them. One of the reasons that we baptize babies is because babies don't get to choose. It is chosen for them. It's something that happens to them. God claims them in the waters of baptism. One of the reasons that we come to communion and that we kneel is because this is something that's happening to us. We say the body and blood given and broken for you. It is given and broken for you or to you. It is God coming to you. Let me see if I can demonstrate what this is like a little bit. So, Dan, can you come help me? This is going to be really easy. Hi, Dan, how are you? Good. Hi, my name is Yahweh. I'm your God. Nice to meet you. I am the God that led you out of the house of slavery in Egypt. Um, In fact, wouldn't you say that listening to this sermon this morning is kind of like being in slavery and in bondage?
1: A little bit, yeah. A little
2: bit, yeah. That's what I thought. Uh, Do you want to get out of here? Yes. Perkins, I think they're serving manna. Let's go. How about we'll... uh...
1: All
2: right. How about a round of applause and thanks for Dan. Excellent acting. How does that feel? You didn't plan on this? This wasn't your scheme? I would say it makes you feel enormously vulnerable. We have this crazy thing that we do in the United States that we like to think that we pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. This is fundamentally not theologically a Hebrew point of view at all. In fact, the Hebrew point of view might be something like this. For people of faith, God gave you the boots, God gave you your hands, God gave you your will, God gave you your heart, God gave you your life, and then helps you get dressed We live under the illusion so often that we are self-sufficient, and it's not true. We are wholly dependent on one another and the earth and on God. We don't pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. We live in community where parents and aunts and uncles and neighbors help us find our boots, help us put them on, help us pull them up, and then send us out in the world to do the same for others. One of the very first things that God warns God's people about before entering into the promised land, where in many ways they will become wealthy and privileged, is to remember that this is all God's gift. One of the last things that I want to think about this morning... um, is that how many of you, when you read, uh, because I'm sure you do every day devotionally, uh, and, um, hey, Joe, can you turn down my gain a little bit? I feel really echoey. Do I feel echoey to you? Thank you. That's better. You can turn the volume up, but keep the gain down. Thank you. Oh, I'm ringing in my own ears. Um, It's to make sure you're listening, right? Um, So one of the interesting things that Luther does, does does anybody remember from their confirmation class how Luther begins all of the Ten uh, Commandment Explanations? How does it start? Think back to your days in confirmation. How do all of Luther's explanations start? What, what? Nice and loud. We are to fear and love God. Has that ever bothered you or troubled you? Or have you ever wondered why? When you think about God, do you think of fear? Some of you are shaking your head yes. Here's what Ellen Davis says. Fearing God is the most common Hebrew term for genuine and informed faith. Let me me read that again. Fearing God is the most common Hebrew term for genuine and informed faith. It is a learned response and an astute one. Because Israel's God is God of God, Lord of Lords, the only deity who is to be genuinely feared. While Deuteronomy is not the first book of the Bible to call upon Israel to fear God, it uses the term more than any other in all of Torah. Thus, it challenges us to reckon with one of the central theological ideas of the Bible in both Testaments. I don't think enough, I think, about fearing God, but it is all over the stories of the Old Testament. If you think about Jonah and the story of the whale, What's interesting is that the sailors on the boat are the ones who fear God in the midst of the storm and not Jonah. When we talk about the story of the flood and all of the world being wiped out except for uh, Noah and his family, the Hebrew people would have had a sense of not only their dependency but their actual fear of God. It, what we've done so often is we turned we, we we've used other words for this we've said either reverence or awe but ellen davis says these words aren't actually adequate for the way that the hebrew bible so often asks people to both fear and love god and so i wonder what are the things that we fear what are the things that you are afraid of are you afraid of failure are you afraid of immigrants and strangers? Are you afraid of people who are different than you? Are you afraid of your own loss of identity? Are you fear of, do you have a fear of being insignificant? Here's why I wanted to stop and pause on this one for just a second. I have this crazy idea that if we ended up directing all of our fears appropriately towards God if it would actually free us from our fears that we experience ourselves and of our neighbor. If we we somehow were able to direct all of our fear appropriately in God's direction, there would be nobody left to be afraid of, including ourselves. Paul says something like this. If God is for us, who could be against us? Of what then should we be afraid? Life? Death? Famine? Persecution? Persecution? Politics, political leaders, immigrants, strangers. I wonder if we properly directed our fear, if strangely we would be freed. One of the oddest things about Hebrew faith is that love of God goes directly through fear. I want to say one last word about one of the commandments. We could spend all day long talking about the Ten Commandments, but I want to talk about Sabbath for a couple of different reasons. One of the things that's interesting about the Ten Commandments is that we get them twice. Uh, you get them in Exodus as they uh, are entering, are they coming out of uh, Egypt and into the Promised Land, and then we get them again here. Uh, and what's interesting about them is what follows. The Ten Commandments for the Hebrew people are sort of like the Constitution. They don't change much, but how they interpret them change. One of the questions that I often get regularly about thinking about scripture is that as Lutherans, we get accused of sort of picking and choosing what we think is the right thing. And when we were talking about sexuality and sexual identity, that happened a lot. People said all sorts of things about, oh, you're just picking the things that you like out of the Bible and choosing to ignore the others. I actually think that's not true. If I were to give you a novel and to plop down one particular page and it was about a murder, would you think that that book was about murder? Or would you say, I have to read the whole book to understand what the whole book is actually about, and then I can go back and decide what that murder in the middle of the book is about. That's what you do, right? This is how we read. The Hebrew Bible is the same thing. There is a center. There is a core. There is a lens. There is a heart to the biblical story. And we read it through that. And the Bible itself does this. When they leave uh, Egypt, the uh, economy is almost entirely agriculturally based. And so the Sabbath has all to do about creation and honoring God's creation. When they finally start moving into the promised land, the economy has changed. And all of the definitions and redefinitions about Sabbath suddenly become about the economy. The biblical witness argues with itself internally. To say that you might read the Bible literally is to actually not read the Bible literally. <laughs> The Bible changes its position on things. And this is one of the particular places it does so. That the way it interprets Sabbath in the second giving of the Ten Commandments is different than the first one. And I want to say this. I think Sabbath actually might be the thing that we need more than anything else. (laughs) Sabbath. How many people feel their lives are just too busy? If I ask you, thank you, you can raise your hands, I appreciate it. If I were to ask almost anyone in this room this morning, how's your life, they would say, good, but busy. It's like our American badge of honor. We're busy. We're pulling up our boots by our bootstraps. We're busy. We Thanks to Earl. <laughs> so the Sabbath is an intentional ego-breaking commandment. I have a professor friend who told me one time she was working on her dissertation Uh, And she kept wanting to re-edit it and re-edit it. And finally, her professor took it it from her, uh, put it on the desk and says, I'm turning this in for you right now. She says, I'm not done yet. And the professor says, you never get to finish anything. God is the only one who gets to finish. You're done. Turn it in. Now. That's what the Sabbath commandment is supposed to be. Stop. Stop. You are not that important. One of the things that I've uh, tried to do uh, since going back to school is I've tried to do a Sabbath on Sunday afternoons. I've tried to stop and do nothing. Do you know how hard it is to not do anything on Sunday afternoon when there's lawns to rake and books to read and boats to get out of the water and work to do? It's hard. And it's so good. I have to admit, I've only accomplished it about 80% of the time. But when I do, I feel this fear and weight lifted. I feel anxiety dissipate. I feel free. That the weight of the world is not on my shoulders, but is squarely on God's. I pledge allegiance to Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. And to the kingdom for which he died, Josue and Maria on the run, the poor, outcast, and marginalized. My life is God's. In her I find my hope and my salvation. I pledge to God above all else, money, power, state, or party. I give to God all that I am so that all may live in love. God, break our hearts for those who weep, that we may see in one another the face of God in all we meet, father, sister, mother, brother. I pledge allegiance to Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. For there is no triumph but your love, forgiveness and confession. Amen.
0: Thanks for stopping by and listening to the Shepherd of the Hills Sermons Podcast. For more information about Shepherd of the Hills, please check out sothchurch.com or find us on Facebook. Feel free to share this sermon and be sure to follow us on social media and wherever you find your podcast. Go in peace. Serve the Lord.